0: to the cloud pod where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We
1: are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 53, recorded on January 2nd, 2020. 2019, we hardly knew EV.
0: Mm, happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year. Woo. Hey, hey, happy New Year. <laughs> It's been a it's been a lovely break here over the uh, holiday season, and it's been uh, we've been blessed by all of our lovely cloud providers by not pr- releasing a lot of stuff, so we can do a great 2019 recap show today. So that's a that's a win that I did not expect to have happen. Yep, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspected you know 500 announcements uh, all between Christmas and New Year yeah. that we would be buried. <laughs> that's, that's been kind of going the last couple months here, uh, but uh, luckily that is not the case. So let's uh, jump into 2019. So uh, if you guys remember way, way, way back in episode like three or four, uh, we predicted some stuff for 2019 uh, that we sucked at. But uh, <laughs> we, will, we will touch base on those and see where, <laughs> how we did for 2019. And then we'll talk about maybe what our, our hopes and dreams are for 2020. Uh, and then we will jump into uh, a couple new news items. And then uh, we will skip the lightning round this week uh, for a fantastic round of Ask TCP, which is our new Ask uh, the CloudPod listeners uh, submitted questions to us on our Slack, and I have those ready for you guys to answer away in some level of due diligence. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> 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 but first of all, the 2019 recap, uh, drum roll, please. Uh, so I predicted that a there would be consolidation in the smaller cloud providers like DigitalOcean or Linode. Uh, allowing a solid number four or number five player to kind of come out of that. Uh, that did not happen. There was no acquisitions by DigitalOcean or Linode. Um, we did see some interesting, uh, some interesting uh, announcements for DigitalOcean a managed Kubernetes service. Linode's done some things as well, uh, but no consolidation in that space, uh, which was a little bit surprising for me, uh, especially since I predicted this would happen in 2019. Uh, it has not happened. What do you guys uh, think? Was I just completely uh, on the wrong path? No, I think I think we're
0: just way ahead of our time. I think it'll it's it's destined to happen, but just not yet.
1: Just too early. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, too early would be your prediction, Jonathan, uh, which is that Slack uh, would get acquired yeah. in 2019.
0: It still will. It, still uh, will. it
1: did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it did go public in 2019, which was what was my big laugh at you because I was like, well, they're about to go public. They're going to IPO and. They're going to make that billion-dollar unicorn valuation into real tangible money for their investors, which they did. Uh, And then, of course, ironically enough today, the information posted an article about Slack getting acquired potentially sometime in 2020 is their prediction for 2020. So, again, you are ahead of the time. uh, Yeah. Other more reputable news sources than us have now stated that they also believe Slack will get acquired due to dwindling profits and revenue growth uh, against the likes of team.
0: Yeah, I think Slack, I think it still will be acquired. I'm sure there'll be, uh, I mean, their stock is valued at like 40% what it was during their IPO, so that, that can't be good news for anybody. And really, the, the, the value of Slack is not in the technology the value of Slack is in the ecosystem they built. So I, I think um, it's easy for somebody to steal that away. That's, uh, it's going to feature in my list of predictions for 2020, for sure.
2: It is pretty incredible, though. I mean, we still work with like 100%, maybe 95% of our customers over Slack. I feel like it's, I saw those numbers that their adoption rates are slowing, but they're still growing at a huge clip, and we see them everywhere everywhere.
1: Yeah, I, I think they're, in most companies, and most enterprises, I don't know they're necessarily enterprise-wide tools, but I think they have definitely a niche in development teams and operational teams, and you see the integrations with AWS and Azure and Google. They're all adopting Slack as a great way to do chat ops. I, I just think it's it still has adoption. It just doesn't have become an enterprise play for the entire enterprise in some companies, and I think that's where teams may have some input. But, um, yeah, I, I still see it everywhere in tech. So, uh, But I do hope that maybe they... Start talking about their pricing model because I still think their pricing model is flawed in many, many ways. <laughs> uh, and you know, twenty-one dollars a user per month—that's uh, pretty pricey for the top-end enterprise models versus Teams. Um, I think that is a blocker to larger adoption. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Peter, uh, I can't really validate yours, but uh, you believe that container-based models uh, will continue to get more adoption than serverless. And this was based entirely on Foghorn resources, who were all your Kubernetes resources were super, super busy, uh, but that you felt that, that would continue to be the case for 2020. So I don't know how your resource utilization has been for 2020 or 2019. No, it's totally uh, Kubernetes. But uh, if, it's yeah. still, if it's still Kubernetes, then I guess you were maybe right on this one.
2: Yeah, I, we saw way more uh, work in Uh, container-based versus serverless. Although, you know, that has a little to do with the fact that we do a lot more infrastructure than apps, so.
1: I think we finally passed the point, though, where serverless might start getting a lot of adoption. I think with the ability to now commit uh, resources to get away from cold start, the network changes that were made earlier in the year, I I definitely feel like we're at a tipping point now where serverless might start taking a much more aggressive um, stance in a lot of enterprises and become much more of a first-choice because uh, some of those limitations and issues that were blocking a widespread adoption have kind of moved on. And then uh, you also predicted that the Japanese whiskey prices would go down. And I, I don't I don't buy Japanese whiskey, so I, I can't comment on that. They did either,
2: not so. go down.
1: Did they, <laughs> did they go up or uh, did they stay flat? No, I
2: think they stayed flat. They stayed about flat. I think the $60 bottles that suddenly went up to 105 are still 105 Hopefully they go back down in 2020.
0: You could argue if the price didn't go up with inflation, the actual cost went down.
2: Nah, I'm not giving me that. I'm not giving you either, but I don't want
1: it <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, right, so we'll give you the win, Peter, on this one that you know you did you did call that you felt serverless would be lesser to Kubernetes, which I guess you were right on. So
0: I think he's right, because there was the announcement of EKS and um, VMware are Pivotal and there's definitely a much more of a move in the industry to container based um, deployments than serverless deployments. But at the same time, I think serverless is going to come in by stealth on the back end because look at things like um, uh, CloudWatch events, which are now adding events for all kinds of different um, scenarios, which can all trigger lambdas or trigger serverless things or step functions. So I, I think uh, eventually serverless is going to win. Everything that happens is happening because of a trigger, which is really just an event. Serverless will win. That's my my, my gamble.
1: I agree. I think serverless will eventually become the leader but uh, we're not there yet. I think you know Kubernetes probably has in a couple of years before it really reaches that point where people are like, why are we why are we messing with all these containers and these hosts and in these different things when we can just run functions, a service, or in native code or whatever else. But uh, we'll see. Well, uh, you know, why we were not very good at announcements for 2019 or predictions, uh, the vendors did have their big announcements in 2019, and so we, each of us picked three of our favorite announcements. Um, I have picked across all three providers. I don't know about Peter, and it looks like Jonathan uh, did also all three providers as well. Uh, And since I wrote the list, I will go first. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) And so my my first favorite uh, announcement of 2019 was uh, Google Anthos. I think um, it's a fantastic way for Google to get adoption into the enterprise space across multiple cloud providers. It really uh, helps GKE maintain a dominant position in the Kubernetes space. Um, I think it opens a conversation up for Google to be able to take advantage of customers who are already on the cloud in a much bigger way. And I think it's probably the most uh, fully thought out strategy for how to be multi-cloud with Kubernetes um, of any of the three providers. So that was my my first one.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I think I think eventually Azure and AWS will follow with a similar type of offering. I don't think AdPost is quite it because it requires a lot of, well... <clears throat> i kind of i'll say a lot of our upfront expense in terms of hardware and actually having a data center presence to deploy the thing but I'll, i will you know also acknowledge that anthos is not cheap itself with like 10k a month minimum commitment so
1: yeah and i, I kind of expect that maybe we'll see that change this year um that was the you know typical cost of Try not to get widespread adoption, but enough adoption to prove it out and, and you know, break out the bugs, and then you'll lower the price, and more adoption will come in the future, is my guess there. But um, yeah, I know you did uh, predict that AWS would have something similar. Um, I do think EKS, any of on-premise or in different clouds, would be really interesting, and I do hope that happens in the future, but uh, we'll see. Uh, Azure kind of has that a little bit with AKS already. You can run AKS in multiple places, but still not quite there at the level of Anthos. So that uh, is what it is, so... Uh, Peter, how about you? What was your your first uh, 2019 favorite announcement?
2: Yeah, so I went with very less visionary and more practical ones that really affected a lot of the projects we did. So um, the first one, actually two of them I did that. Um, The first one would be um, Transit Gateway uh, effectively getting Direct Connect and interregion peering, making it a a viable replacement for doing the – Uh, Building your own transit network on Amazon with virtual appliances, which uh, really simplifies deployments where, you know, we're doing the multi-region, multi-account deployments. Is it
0: visionary? Is it kind of, uh, it kind of seems like they should have had that all along. I I was very disappointed that they didn't have Direct Connect support and they didn't have inter-region peering and all these things which Google
2: have already got in their own network, so... Do you think it was more of a catch up thing? Or? Oh, it's total catch up. I mean, well, I mean, I think this is tech debt from being the first cloud company putting together your network strategy and not really knowing yet what customers we're going to want and how they're going to do it. Uh, and then finding out, oh, no, we're, we're going to have customers who need uh, to use our accounts as um, as blast radius, which means our networking is going to be massively complex uh, to you know get all of these workloads on the same virtual network. Um, and so, you know, that was super painful, I think for lots of customers, this gives a much less painful method of getting over that hump. But yeah, I, I account it to being the first to market, uh, and tech debt associated with that.
0: Definitely. I mean, especially if you look at some of the limits of things, you can you can almost imagine how they implemented some of these networking um, constructs that are on the back end. You know, the limits are sort of two hundred, and you know that there's eight bits of information somewhere storing something, and they've kept those last fifty five for themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> You know, th- th- things like that, and you, you know that's that's a hard constraint when they say it's a hard constraint. So yeah, it's it's definitely good to see this stuff. Um, I I, I kind of wonder if they're going to reinvent the whole VPC idea at some point so they can really deploy global networks because this is still very regional but but glued together in a clunky kind of way
2: yeah yeah
0: maybe ipv6 will help them solve that
1: yeah hopefully all right jonathan how about you so
0: i think my my pick for google is um they're explainable ai they were the first people to uh, come out with a way to help describe how machine learning models have come to their conclusions it's going to be especially useful for uh, healthcare, where you have to justify exactly how the tool you've built comes to its conclusions and, <laughs> oh, and is, re- as, is repeatable. Um, I mean, you know, you, That's you look such at what a great happened, point. Yeah, <laughs> you look at what happened with Amazon and their and their model they built, which was fantastic for helping screen candidates, and it was found to discriminate against women. And so, something like this tool would would help. Um, Show that uh, you know the gender of an applicant was 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 a key component in the decision making, and and especially when it comes to healthcare, you can you know, you've got lots of different inputs, lots of different um, factors that you're measuring about patients, you can start to use the model to sort of give you information back about which were the most important uh, factors in leading to outcomes you know so if it's is it age obesity or something else you know you can say well if it's age nothing can do about that if it's obesity we can help people lose weight if it's something else we can help people solve those problems so i think it's it's sort of twofold one it helps with um approval of solutions and, and secondly it can help the medical profession with actually um sort of honing in on the on the causes of of these outcomes and and addressing those things before they become problems to begin with
2: i'm just imagining a uh an ad for a new drug on TV. <laughs> we're,
1: we're, not, we're not sure how it works. Side effects might include data exposure through a public S3 bucket, uh, <laughs> over over analysis of serverless and containerization of Kubernetes. Yeah. <laughs> Those are all side effects.
0: <laughs> There's definitely a huge move of, of healthcare into the cloud space, and especially using the, the AI and machine learning models to to um, sort of help identify problems early on. So I think although, although this is going to be especially helpful in healthcare, it's definitely useful for any kind of AI model in, in finding out exactly how it works. And Amazon followed suit. They released a, a, a similar thing, and I think as you did as well. But but Google first, so they, they get my, uh, my kudos for the year.
1: All right. Well, my uh, second one for 2019 favorite announcement was the Azure Tardigrade. Uh, mostly because I think the name of this is pretty cool. The concept of basically using machine learning and AI to proactively address hardware failures before it impacts Azure's uptime, uh, which, as you guys know, Azure's uptime is not one of the better <laughs> of the three. And so they uh, are doing a lot of in, a lot of work and a lot of different things to try to drive improvements in their infrastructure, which is all part of their tardigrade project. And it's just really great um, computer science, engineering, Thought process put together and some really great blog posts about it. Uh, so overall, I think that was my my favorite Azure announcement. Uh, I mean, I could talk about all the Ultra Box discs and all those things too, and how amazing those are. But I think the tardigrade is uh, much cooler. Peter, number two.
2: My second one was um, uh, the announcement of Document DB with Mongo compatibility, um, mostly because of its. I mean, you know, setting the direction where these, this business model of open core and enterprise features uh, is going to be, is going to be the sort of the new SaaS model. And it really, you know, put the challenge to those companies to potentially have to find a new business model.
0: Equally, I suppose you could, you could talk about Elasticsearch in the same, in the same bucket. Yeah.
1: Definitely interesting, especially how much flack uh, they have gotten for DocumentDB with MongoDB compatibility. I have really enjoyed making you say the whole thing multiple times in the lightning round 2019. <laughs> So it has given me immense pleasure just for that alone. <laughs> so no, that is a, a great number two uh, as well.
0: So my second was on the reInvent announcements, which I was really impressed with. And it's the AWS partnership with Verizon for uh, the Wavelength service, which provides compute and storage Uh, Right at the edge of the uh, cell phone network, and I think um, it's it's great that 5G has always promised millisecond latencies to um, at least the cell phone towers. But without compute and without storage, there it's it's fairly useless. So by providing uh, either outposts or some kind of technology which which can provide the compute and storage services at the edge, it was kind of useless. And I think Amazon have been uh, I think they're in the right time at the right place. To be there to help enable new a new sort of series of applications, um, especially gaming, things like that.
1: I do hope that the five G you know lives up to the hype. I, I, you know the amount of noise in the market from Verizon and T Mobile and these guys trying to come to the first five G network and how five G is going to be revolutionary. I, I hope it's more than just faster networking to my cell phone and faster edge computing uh, from AWS. Uh, I hope it actually can deliver the hype. But uh, yeah, definitely interesting and and really nice to see this announcement from AWS at reInvent around it. Marketing is just a nightmare
0: when it comes to technology. Um, AT&T jump jump on the bandwagon saying they've got 5G services when they really don't. Um, T-Mobile did roll out a 5G uh, low bandwidth service in their 600 megahertz band that they paid a fortune for uh, nationwide in the US at least. And Verizon haven't done the same thing, but they have some smaller localized within cities high bandwidth solutions because high bandwidth requires um, an access point, you know, many, many, many per square mile, whereas uh, the T-Mobile 600 megahertz band is designed for rural areas. And that, that thing can, can travel for miles. So it's, they're completely different technologies. It's, it's definitely they're definitely both improvements on 4G, but in two different directions. One is, one is access over greater distances, and one is access at high bandwidth. But in general, I think um, Amazon have definitely made a really smart choice.
1: All right. My third one is uh, the ECS EKS CloudWatch Container Insights uh, from Amazon. This is a really fantastic CloudWatch dashboard that kind of gives you insight into everything going on in your containers. Um, we run the CloudPod website on containers, and I run a bunch of other websites on containers as well. And so it's really nice to be able to get a really nice dashboard uh, without not a lot of work. And it just really shows you kind of the power of where CloudWatch can go uh, as it starts moving up the stack and and trying to add some of these more value-add features beyond just CPU and memory and disk uh, and events. So this is uh, super exciting for me. I really enjoy this feature, and I've used it at work. I've used it on my personal projects. And so this was my third uh, for 2019 top announcements. Wow, I didn't see that coming.
0: It <laughs> was definitely a cool feature. Do you think it was the the best feature, or just your personal best feature? Oh,
1: well, it's my personal feature. Okay. I mean, like, there's other cool features that came out this year too. All right. They're just my personal favorite. So, I mean, I, I don't know about wavelength, but. Yeah, you're, you're excited about it, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. <laughs> not gonna mark you down because you're excited about something I'm not. I'm like, come on, Jonathan. Jeez, he's
0: rough on you. Yeah. logging. Right. Oh, come on,
1: it's, it's beyond. It's it's beyond logging though. It's it's the metrics and the systems and, and it really gives you a lot of insights into ECS in a way that you were missing before, without a lot of manual code. So it's just a lot of a, a lot of elimination of uh, debt,
2: in my opinion. So. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna piggyback with you though um, because. The announcement I picked was much less uh, exciting from a feature standpoint, it was EKS getting an SLA of three nines. Um, But to me, it kind of signified that uh, we're now allowed to run production workloads on it. And uh, EKS was a a significant portion of our 2019 learning curve. So it's pretty cool to start migrating production workloads there and, and see that service become mature.
1: I mean, definitely uh, glad to see the three nines availability. I do hope that that gets improved. I think four or five nines for their backplane would be really nice to have. But, uh, yeah, definitely improvements all across the board. So glad to see that one as well. Yeah.
2: All
1: right, Jonathan, wow us with your third pick since you, you didn't like <laughs> CloudWatch Container Insights.
0: I, I think my my third pick for, for Microsoft, at least that's my, my, my last provider, was just their... Um, general support for the developers in general, including the acquisition of GitHub and the implementation of GitHub Actions, all the DevOps tooling that they've come up with in the past 12 months. It's been uh, fantastic. I think um, it it definitely shows a a, a change in direction for them as a company. And I'll put aside the fact that they changed the licensing model to make it more expensive to run things like SQL Server on other providers. Eh, We'll brush that under the rug. But I I think... uh, (laughs) I, they do seem to have changed their their, their motivations a little, and um, going after developers the
1: way they are is is probably a really smart move for them. Two steps forward, one step back. Yeah, that's what <laughs> the licensing thing was.
2: <laughs> it's okay, at least net forward. I actually
1: was looking at the Azure DevOps items as well, and I I almost had those on my list, but I, I felt the Tarte grade kind of beat that one out. So glad to uh, see you pick that one up. Cool. And uh, then uh, you have an honorable mention. I don't I don't have one because uh, mostly say three was hard enough to pick. So, but. You, what was your honorable mention, Jonathan? So
0: I couldn't decide. And I was kind of happy to see that if Microsoft finally gave up on Edge as a as a browser. They've been trying so hard for about 20 years to compete with everybody else in the browser space. But but actually admitting that the game is over and they're going to pivot to a Chromium-based solution is, is probably great for everybody. I think it makes the web an easier place to, to work with when, if, when most browsers are now Chromium-compatible. So good for them. Yeah, but now we don't get Silverlight. Oh, <laughs> and we don't get flashy either after, after 2020, so you know, let's, let's have a shed a private tear someplace for those things, and let's move on. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure Partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud, under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered.
1: All right, well, moving on to our crystal ball section here on the 2020 predictions. <laughs> uh, so my my 2020 prediction was that AWS and Microsoft will spend a large amount of money, development and marketing dollars to make EKS and AKS feel comparable or compatible uh, with GKE uh, for Kubernetes workloads. And so I think this is you know just going to be a large amount of investment in features and capabilities for a- AKS and EKS to really get that uh, that parity with GKE that they are lacking. So there you go. That's my 2020 prediction for this year.
0: How are you going to measure that, though?
1: Man. Marketing, oh, I, uh,
0: advertising, that kind of thing? Or?
1: I, I think you'll see in features, and you know, features mean they're spending money on it. And you know, Yeah, marketing dollars are not going to... Look at their earnings statement to see how much they spend on marketing for that because they don't break that out. But I do feel that you're going to see a very large um, investment in these areas, and you'll see a lot of f- new features, new capabilities that are, in many ways, GKE competitive uh, checkbox features, as well as uh, new things that kind of separate thing, you know, separate the paradigm. I think you're already starting to see a little bit with um, Fargate for EKS. I think that's kind of the very first uh, step into that direction, and I think you'll start seeing a lot of interesting things from both of them.
2: Yeah, good choice i'm on the I'm on the Kubernetes bandwagon too. I forgot that was one of my predictions last year, but um mine this year was that the number of Kubernetes workloads uh will double this year, so that should be almost impossible to validate but <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna, I- Say do you have
1: access to an analyst report that I could I could leverage? That's what I'm thinking. There might be one
2: somewhere. There might be one. There
1: might be a Gartner report or a Forrester wave out there somewhere that will talk
2: about this. Uh, I guess you could
0: look up the number of bug uh, bugs logged against Kubernetes or something like that. You know, more more people using it, more bugs
2: logged. That's what I was looking. I was thinking, can I do downloads? I could do stars, but then that eliminate that doesn't count for all the managed services running Kubernetes, like those customers. So I didn't think that made a lot of sense. But bugs might <laughs> might be a good one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how many? I mean, how many more ways can we come up with how to deploy Kubernetes in 2020? I think be the, yeah, you know, between VMware and uh, GKE, AKS, EKS, uh, and then you know Minikube and all those. I mean, I'm, it seems like every week someone's coming up with a new way to deploy Kubernetes mm. uh, to make it simpler for you.
0: Yeah, I, I really wanted uh, some kind of VMware announcement for my 2020 prediction, especially around the pivotal. Acquisition, And I couldn't quite figure out what it was going to be because they already had a Kubernetes offering of sorts. And I think the Pivotal acquisition kind of helps solidify their place in the market and all that kind of junk. So I, I don't know. I couldn't quite solidify what they were going to do with it other than just try and gain a bit of market share for the on-prem um Areas, so my I, I, I didn't go with any kind of Kubernetes for my first choice, but I still think Slack <laughs> is going to be acquired by somebody. <laughs> nice, like...
2: <laughs> that is so great. They
0: they will like,
1: like the stuff. You've uh, doubled down on it, especially with that information article today. It was just, it was inevitable.
0: <laughs> doubled down. They're worth they're worth forty percent what they were a year ago. I don't think their technology is anything to write home about. I think they've they're, they're in a bubble. And they will be replaced by somebody, and they will be acquired by somebody.
1: If anyone from Slack is listening, and would like to sponsor the Cloud Pod. We will will omit this section from the 2020 predictions. <laughs> well, they they can certainly <laughs>
0: afford to sponsor the CloudPod at twenty one dollars a user, but you know.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed.
0: <laughs> it's 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 hard to compete against FreeNode and uh, and other IRC based solutions. And I know that they have other value adds, especially around the you know the the application integrations and the. Um, you know, the sort of enterprise features that they have, but but still, I, I don't think those differentiate
1: them enough. Do you have uh, anything else for 2020 you want to mention here, or are you going to just stick with Slack double down?
0: Oh, did you? Did, I thought we were going to have like a whole go, go around three times in No, no, no. Okay. So yeah, I think – Just just one pick for 2020. Oh, one that's pick. That's... Oh, well, i got three picks for 2020. Oh, interesting.
1: Well, I mean, you can, you can make the other two honorable mentions, or you can make Slack an honorable mention.
0: Okay, an, Slack is the honorable mention, and I'll move that to the end, or not as the case may be, but I think AWS will push into the African continent um, in terms of data centers, there are three big uh, economies in the African continent There's Tanzania, Kenya and um, the Democratic Republic of Congo in Kinshasa. They're all huge economies. I think um, in the next 50 years-ish, I think around about 50% of the population of the world is going to live in Africa. Um, it would be very short-sighted to not get a, a foothold there as soon as possible. And I think uh, that the next AWS data centers will and should be in Africa somewhere.
1: And so this is this is beyond the Cape Town region, which is already now. Beyond,
0: beyond, many more, okay. I think. I think. But
1: so do you think those will be local regions, like this new LA thing, or do you think they will be full-blown regions?
0: No, I think there'll have to be full regions. I, th- I think there's enough people there and enough business there and enough money there now to, to warrant full regions. Okay. I mean, Google have already kind of... Hinted that that's where they're going with their with, with their sort of um, optical fibers that they run down the side of Africa and you know, the hundred gigabit connections they've got to various places. So I, I think AWS will respond with local data centers or, or, or data centers at least in in that continent.
1: All right.
0: Yep. And my my final prediction. <laughs> I'm hedging my bets here just a little bit, but uh, you know, AWS have announced their Graviton ARM-based CPUs. Azure haven't done anything with that at all. Uh, Google definitely use ARM internally because they're Android testing and stuff. But I think this year they will announce uh, Risk Five-based architecture instances, not ARM-based instances. I think they've been uh, kind of sitting on that a little bit while they're working on the technology. But I see this year a new instance class.
1: Hmm. why do you feel that they would go risk V versus arm
0: for financial reasons I mean arm is pretty expensive but they well, they're, yeah, they're, they're yeah. the only viable people in the market until a few years ago and, and risk V is still upcoming technology Google has sponsored some of the risk V works up to date so I think I, I understand why you all haven't really gone down the the arm path like the the windows the, the arm based windows you know, mini laptops and things didn't work at all. <laughs> Go- you know, Amazon have definitely gone with Graviton and, and the Nitro platform, and that works very well. I think Google have notably not gone with anything ARM publicly yet. So I, th- I think it's because they're waiting for some new tech to come along, and I think that's going to be risk five.
1: All right. Well, we'll see. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, there's advantages and disadvantages to that. One is that if you can be differentiate yourself, then that's somewhat helpful but if it, it's also the risky part is the same thing of you know power pc compute chips uh, versus intel power you know compute chips and apple made that bet and you know ended up regretting it and going to intel eventually now they're predicted to go to arm first as one of the first players to make the pivot um, going with a different technology processor architecture is a risk but it also if it has a significant advantages over arm then it makes sense to take that bet But uh, we'll see how that works out. It didn't work out for PowerPC.
0: It it didn't work out, but it did work out for Apple. I mean, Apple have pivoted three times now to different CPU architectures, and they've done that very successfully. So I I think Google could do the same thing. Yeah. When you build a container with a set of instructions, it doesn't matter what the underlying CPU is. It's the same instructions either way.
1: I look forward to dealing with compile errors again. In the world, <laughs> it's like all that noise that we used to make back in the '90s, and uh, all these different you know compute platforms and processor stacks and compilation errors and we're going right back to it. You know, it's a full circle.
0: One of the additional motivations is going to be that Intel have clearly got a lot of bugs in there. Well, in, Intel is in clearly
1: clearly stuck. I mean, like there's they have no hope for you know, Moore's Law and with their architecture and being able to continue down that path. And, you know, why they keep developing chips with more and more uh, cores, that's not really moving the needle. They can't get their 13 nanometer or 11 nanometer uh, chip fab working. Like, they, they have a lot of problems. So uh, it makes sense that someone's going to replace Intel because an x86 is our architecture because Intel can't do it. But... Um, yeah, risk versus ARM or not? I don't. I don't know about that area.
0: Yeah, and I, I was kind of torn actually between AMD and, and risk f- for Google um, because I, I I've uh, been a great fan of AMD for the past couple of years. I've invested in AMD. Oh wow! Um, and that's kind of worked out quite nicely for me. <laughs> but um, I, I think risk is is where they're going to go because of the additional savings for power consumption, and that's going to become more expensive as, as uh, time time goes on. I guess ultimately. The consumer doesn't care what the platform is that it runs on. They just want it to be cheap and performance. Yeah. And
2: long battery life, right? Which means efficient.
1: Exactly. I do. I do look forward to ARM-based Macs. I think that'd be kind of cool. Yeah,
2: I think so too.
0: Most large organizations run six or even more monitoring tools. Each of them uses a mixture of data collection techniques from technology providers, open source communities, or custom integrations and maintaining dozens of integrations across these tools can be a significant investment. Blue Medora introduces Bindplane, not another monitoring platform, but the industry's first monitoring integration as a service. Bindplane can gather data from over 150 technology data sources spanning your entire organization. Remove or reduce your reliance on expensive monitoring and SIM solutions by sending log data to Google Stackdriver, New Relic, or as your monitor. Check out the extensive list of integrations, all provided at no additional cost. Learn more and sign up for a free trial by visiting blumadora.com slash cloudpod. The link's available in our show notes, and as a bonus for CloudPod listeners, Blumadora are offering Google Compute Platform credits to help get you started. BionPlane Seamlessly stream hybrid cloud and on-premise metric and log data.
1: All right, well, that's it for our 2019 look back and our 2020 look ahead. Let's, uh, let's touch on some news here. Uh, so first of all, in general news, uh, VMware has completed the acquisition of Pivotal. Uh, this was announced at VMworld, uh, and this was a large uh, acquisition to basically help them get a bigger foothold into Kubernetes. Um, really beyond the, this acquisition closed, there's really no news here yet, uh, but we will hopefully see something at VMworld this year as well as uh, VMworld Europe. Uh, as they start integrating Pivotal into the VMware ecosystem and what that means for Kubernetes on VMware, which I think is going to be their big focus for 2020.
0: VMware have been buying up a bunch of companies over the past year, especially, but even even going back further than that, they bought Bitfusion, Bitnami, AVI Networks, and uh, I, I guess a few other people who I can't remember right now, but um, they, they're clearly well aware that the, the time of the local data center, the private data center is is almost up. <laughs> and so diversifying, and it's it's good to see them being very proactive about this.
1: Well, I think they are looking for that next billion dollar you know, business. And so they've made a bunch of these acquisitions, hoping those will become potentially viable, something bigger. Oh yeah, I mean,
0: oh, actually Carbon Black was one of the big ones of last year that, that there's really we haven't heard yeah. any news about
1: yet. But. Yeah, I suspect that we'll, we'll start seeing more and more of that as well. But I think they had to get, disconnected from the fact that they want all this stuff to live inside of VMware. Um, you know, I think once they get it to the point where it's standalone and it's VMware software, but not tied to VMware and vSphere, I think that's when they can start breaking free, but that's what they haven't quite got yet. Cause they, they didn't have an antivirus program before they bought carbon black. It was part of the hypervisor stack. Uh, but you know, it was it required ESX first. And so, you know, it's a license and, and expense that you had to have just have antivirus. So.
0: I, I kind of wonder, you know, that what, the, what, their portfolio now includes uh storage security uh you know containers all kinds of different things you know
1: well they own uh, they own wavefront as well yeah. if you remember and they also own a cloud cost management vendor i mean
0: if if they were to to pivot from being focused on <laughs> enabling people build private day centers to to actually being their own uh hyperscaler
1: well they i mean they tried that with uh with hyper v or uh, hyper v or uh, whatever uh, whatever that verizon thing was that was awful. Uh, and VCloud Air, if you recall, v Cloud so, Air. Uh, while that why they had a chance to be that, I think uh, I prefer them not to try again yeah. because they, they screwed it up pretty badly the first time around.
2: Well, I just I'm going to be very interested to follow how the integration goes because that um, that's going to be a big one.
1: Uh, Well, Amazon EKS has enabled network access restrictions uh, to the Kubernetes cluster public endpoints. Uh, This allows you to restrict access to the Kubernetes cluster with something as simple as a security group (laughs) for your IPv4 address range, uh, which you can notate inside orientation. Uh, EKS supports both public and private endpoints. But previously, if you made it public, uh, there was no way to restrict that access in any way. And so this new security group capability allows you to at least add a little bit of restrictions to that uh, to make it not so public. That's a pretty simple solution. For a problem that they should have had to release. Uh, Azure has been very quiet. They took Christmas off, so thank you, Azure. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, and Google has uh, had a few articles here. So the first one is uh, the new GCP Foundation build out uh, with automation. The This is a new toolkit called the Cloud Foundation Toolkit, uh, which was released by GCP and partners to help you accelerate your cloud journey. Uh, this includes modules for the popular Terraform uh, framework as well as for the native cloud deployment manager on Google. Uh, The Deployment Manager code is a monorepo with a large number of templates for your developer references, uh, and the the Terraform modules are available to you on a dedicated GitHub organization uh, and also available through the Terraform module registry. Uh, Some of the most popular options include uh, Project Factory to create opinionated uh, GCP projects with shared VPCs, IAMs, and APIs, uh, IAM capabilities, VPCs, and GKE, all available to you out of the box uh, in a quick, easy-to-use Terraform module or... Deployment Manager code, so it's pretty nice.
2: Excellent. Get everyone on the bandwagon.
1: Uh, Well, today, or or actually yesterday, was uh, the first day of the California Consumer Privacy Act, or the CCPA, and uh, Google has released a white paper for you on how you can be compliant with both GCP and the G Suite uh, product line. Uh, There's some new tools and support to enable you to comply with your consumer's rights, including helping access, export, or delete data that you or your users put into G Suite or GCP systems. Uh, And these resources are available to you on the CCPA compliance page, now available to you.
2: Yeah, pretty close to GDPR. If you've already done GDPR.
1: It's a GDPR light as yeah. I have to call it. It's not, it's not quite as restrictive as GDPR, but it's a, it's a definitely something that you're going to have to deal with if you are 25 million or more in revenue uh, and you have employee uh, customers' or consumers' data, uh, you'll be uh, beholden to the CCPA. So definitely check your compliance team's uh, interpretations of the law before you think you're safe.
2: Yeah, because it's as, it's as simple as gathering and maintaining ownership or uh, tracking IP addresses from your marketing yep. automation. So, yeah, I mean, even we did it, even though we're not big enough to uh, qualify.
1: It's just better to be safe than sorry, yep. in my opinion. Uh, we have, I think, all of the GDPR stuff on our CloudPod website for the exact reason. Just better to be safe than sorry. Yep. <laughs> and then the uh, last big announcement from Google was uh, there's new uh, NOAA, or National or Oceanic Association, data sets available for, on the Google Cloud uh, the over five petabytes of data uh, is available across Google services, including BigQuery, Cloud Storage, Google Earth Engine, and Kaggle. Uh, the data is available to you at no cost, but you will incur standard processing egress if you use your own data charges. And the data includes real-time satellite imagery with more than 20 years' worth of national water models, historic storm event data, and aggregate lightning strike data. Uh, So it's pretty awesome if you're interested in checking out uh, some of this data from the NOAA. They do have a fun example project, which is the Acoustic Detection of Humpback Whales, uh, which they have available to you as a blog post. that tells you about how they use this data to track uh, humpback whales across the Earth. So pretty neat. All right, uh, so we were skipping the lightning around this week. Uh, we were taking a, this week off. But we have a segment here called Ask TCP, uh, or Ask the Cloud Pod. And so we asked those of our users in the Slack channel. Uh, if you're not part of our Slack channel, head to the cloudpod.net uh, Slack channel to uh, join us and chat with us about the show and get notifications of different events and things that are happening, when we'll be at, uh, things like Google Next and where we'll be at. It's all posted into our Slack channel. Uh, and we love to communicate with you, our listeners, uh, and see how, see where you're at and see how you found us uh, and learn what you like about the show and what you don't like about it. Uh, we love the feedback. So we asked for questions, uh, and we got a good selection of questions from a few different people. And so I will ask these, and I will uh, let you guys just kind of jump in and answer them as you see appropriate. And if you don't answer, I will try to answer as best I can. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the first one is uh, from Ian McKay. Ian McKay was a guest last year on the show. Uh, he is, of course, the author of CloudFormer. And uh, actually, I was uh, looking around for some other tool the other day, and I found another Ian McKay tool. On, uh, I think it was for Visual Studio Code. as a plug-in. And I was like, oh, it's Ian's code. So that's pretty cool. But uh, he is asking, uh, will we see uh, no code in 2020? Uh, this is, of course, uh, the idea that Uh, Amazon and Microsoft and others are working apparently on a way to do coding without does not require you to know how to code. And so this would be sort of a visual editor, I assume, or some way to basically abstract away the coding components and just talk about objects or different things you want to do and how you want to modify them, I guess. And then that would basically create code that will run somewhere in the cloud magically. Uh, and so there is a rumor that it would happen at reInvent that they would announce this. Uh, they've apparently been hiring for the last year uh, engineers to help build this no-code solution at AWS as well as at Microsoft. And so his question is, again, will we see no code in 2020? I think
0: we will see a very limited no-code in 2020, and I think it won't. It won't be, hey Alexa, create me an application that does this, and then you describe what it does. I think you um, think about things like. Um, Business data um, BDAs that kind of thing you know they, they build reports they build solutions which pull, pull business data out of a known schema uh, to answer specific questions I, I think we'll get uh, hey Alexa um, you know what was my top uh, which who was my top customer this quarter or you know what was my growth this quarter and that that kind of natural language type uh, application for very specific data sets but I don't think this year is going to be the year when you can ask Uh, an AI tool to build you an application that does literally anything.
2: Yeah, I see, uh, I'm sure we'll see tools come out and it's just, they're going to remind me of like business objects and they're going to Exactly,
0: crystal reports, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, (laughs) that and, uh, or they're going to come out with uh, something that reminds me a whole lot of Visual Basic. Uh, Um, Exactly, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, there've been these trends toward like rapid application development um, platforms, and i don't know i feel like you know maybe there's a maybe we have a little blip in companies investing in that and seeing what they can do but i think longer term the answer is more that we're going to teach our business analysts how to code
0: i think for me there are some security concerns around something like this because with without actually having Good controls over access to the data that you're driving your application with. How do you, how do you how do you stop people accessing data that they they shouldn't?
1: I would actually argue that I think uh, you have already seen the beginnings of no code. I think it was announced at Reinvent uh, a little bit quietly as part of the SageMaker IDE, uh, and I think that is where they're going to tackle no code first, because I think the people who are doing big data and AI. They don't want to do a lot of code work. They just want to deal with their data models. And the way that they've written many, many of the SageMaker capabilities that they announced, um, those are a lot of no-code capabilities. And so I think they actually are going to see no-code come into the products in a way that you weren't expecting it to be. It's not going to be like, here's the new no-code editor or whatever else. I think it's become features that you see on top of existing things like SageMaker. It's
2: just nothing in there. (laughs) It's the no-code editor.
1: (laughs) There's nothing in there. Yeah, exactly. Nothing in there. Yeah. So but I think uh, the, the visualizations, ability to do experiments, the ability to do these things uh, and abstract away all of the complicated code logic that was required for big data machine learning, I think that is the beginning of what you're seeing for no code already. Um, that's kind of my take on it at this point. But I do think you'll start seeing more of it in 2020.
0: It very much depends what you mean by code. Are you, are you talking literally C, C plus plus, .net, uh, you know, C sharp, Python, Java? Are you specifically talking about those things as being code, or are you talking about any language, any formal language as being code? Like, where is where is the line?
1: I, I think that's where we're going to see. But I think you're. You know, I think it's going to be a new paradigm of what they think no-code is going to be. I don't think it's going to be like JavaScript or things that we've seen forever. I think it's going to be more abstract and I don't mean Visual Studio for Excel. Uh, I mean, <laughs> like, it, it'll be something that you know, if you click into show source, you'll see source code and, and actual JavaScript, but it's all dynamically generated for you in some type of other way mm-hmm. through a rapid coding environment of some sort. Maybe. I, think,
0: I think Peter can hit the nail on the head with, with uh, you know, Visual Basic kind of thing. But, but if you think about things like FileMaker Pro going back 20 years, they were kind of a no-code way of,
2: or at least a low-code way of, of, uh, of coding applications. It was all data-driven. You know what happened to that platform? No. FileMaker 2 had a little bit of code. FileMaker 3 had a little bit more code capabilities.
1: Because <laughs> what happens is people want to do more complicated things. But uh, you know the, the, these tools still exist, too. Like FileMaker Pro is still a product you can buy. It's still owned by Apple. Uh, there's QuickBase. There's uh, Beeswax. There's a bunch of other things out there that will help you do these type of things. Um, you know, with a forms engine and and stuff of input capability, but yeah, I, I still think it's a little bit too to defined. But I definitely think we've already started to see some of it. That's my take.
0: So, so maybe, maybe my answer for the question is it really depends what you mean by no code. I think maybe, maybe by the end of 2020, we'll understand more about what no code actually uh, could mean.
1: Yeah, that's probably a good clarification yeah. that we'll get. All right, the next uh, question, I think it's a bit (laughs) tongue-in-cheek, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, Rob Martin asks, will Oracle Cloud take over as the top hyperscaler cloud during the first half of 2020 or the second half of 2020? And I'm going to go with neither. (laughs) Uh, But I do think uh, this is going to be the year that we see this large investment Oracle's been making in their cloud start to bite them um, in a pretty heavy way. We just talked about how NetSuite is kind of the only reason why they're still a growth stock in any way. Um, I think the Wall Street's gonna start penalizing them for the amount of money they're making in Oracle cloud uh, and the investment there and I, I think that'll be interesting um, over the next several months to see how that starts to shake out and does that end up resulting in you know someone like Larry stepping away from Oracle uh, and retiring like we hope he does someday but uh, I think uh, I, I don't think there's any hope that Oracle will become the top hyperscaler cloud during any time in 2020
0: probably not and to anyone who follows me on Twitter all 69 of you. <laughs> Well, will have seen my response to the question about you know what what 2050 was going to bring, and I my my uh, my prediction is that Larry Ellison's head in a jar would still be touting the virtues of Oracle Cloud, even though they're being bought out and sent to the sun uh, by uh, Alibaba. <laughs> so. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I But don't it's think next that. gen. But it's next gen. <laughs> it's next gen cloud. Next gen cloud.
1: Uh, Rob also asked another question here, which is that we uh, we had kind of predicted that we see flexible CPU and flexible memory instances uh, at reInvent, and it wasn't announced. Uh, we we're all sad about that. Uh, and he was thinking that there'd be a new instance type. And so he was thinking, is this still coming from AWS or Azure, or are they going to take a different route altogether? And uh, my, my feeling at this point, because it didn't happen this year at reInvent, is that it's not going to happen. Maybe Azure will do something, but I, I think it's is a lot of infrastructure to change. There's a lot of capabilities to to do things. Maybe Nitro will eventually get there, but I don't think you'll see it for anything existing, and I don't think you'll see it for any of the new um, you know, Gravitron-based uh, versions of these instances. So if it is, it'll be a totally new instance type, but I don't know uh, if we'll see it in 2020 at all.
0: I've actually looked at the the combinations of CPU and memory available from AWS. And if you look at the compute-optimized versus the memory-optimized versus the general instances versus the, you know, the, the R instances, which are meant for, for databases, I think almost every combination of CPU and memory is already available. Yeah. And so it, while it would be nice to be able to choose your instance by CPU and memory rather than having to know which instance that mapped to, Um, I don't think AWS is going to change. I think the savings plans are much more intended to be the the migration path for people from EC2 to serverless. I think they want to discourage people from committing to EC2 spend because they want people to migrate their workloads to Lambda and to EKS or Fargate eventually.
1: Well, And and really, at the end of the day, did you want flexible instance types because you wanted better pricing or did you want it because... You actually needed that capacity in that certain size where I think savings plan eliminated a lot of the savings portions of that story. And then if really at the end of the day, if you have a your workload that only needs one or two CPUs and only two gigs of memory, then I think you're right. Ask the question, why isn't this running in a Lambda function? Yeah.
2: yeah, I did not see this as a pain point for customers. And that's usually what's driving their... Uh...
1: I saw it as a pain point before savings plan where where people wanted different costing models and different ways to buy compute to lower their costs but with savings plan now and all that I just i don't see yeah. this big of a need
0: in a way containerization of applications makes it kind of a um a, a mute point because so you, you buy the biggest instances and you pack it full of uh, containers which make the most of the memory and cpu available and you've already solved the problem you're, you're no longer wasting anything at that point so it's, it's 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 kind of it's i don't think it's a problem to solve anymore
1: yeah, well, and, and you kind of get this all with Fargate too, right? Because if you put it into a container, I can run the Fargate container at any size I want. Yeah,
0: and I, th- I think that the transparent movement of workloads from EKS to Fargate or ECS to Fargate would really help sort of solve this for everybody.
1: Uh, moving on to the next question. Uh, will Google break out GCP's numbers and or will we see an Amazon Web Services spinoff? And this is from Derek Helmick. Um, I do not think we will see a Google breakout of GCP's numbers. I do think we might see Azure do it this year in twenty twenty, um, but I don't think Google's anywhere close enough yet to want to start championing their numbers um, in any serious way. Exactly, uh, especially the, especially with only seven percent. But Azure, you know, they're getting to the point now where they might start wanting to break it out for reasons. If it makes, especially with all that money they might be getting from the Pentagon for the Jedi contract, <laughs> maybe they want maybe they want to start touting that in a bigger way. <laughs> so, I, I think you'll see Azure do it before you see Google do it. Uh, is 2020 the year? Eh, 50/50 shot. And then uh, on the second question, will we see an AWS spinoff? I'm going to go with no, uh, only because even if we get into an anti-monopoly type lawsuit, uh, court case, it won't get it won't get settled in 2020. It won't get settled until 2021 at least. So if there's a spinoff, it'll be forced in 2021.
0: I, I think Google will only break out GCP numbers if they are incredibly. Good growth over the next year. So they can, they can say, hey, look look how much we've, we've improved in uh, 12 months or something. I think the AWS spinoff is interesting. I think we're much more likely to see, um, not cloud specifically, but I think we're much more likely to see an Amazon spinoff <laughs> from, from the rest of the marketplace and AWS infrastructure. Than we are to see an AWS spinoff. I think, like I as think, a retailer, yes, Amazon the retailer may may spin off and leave everything else behind, but I don't see AWS spinning off and leaving uh, the marketplace and Amazon as a retailer behind. I don't see them doing
1: I mean, every, any
2: of that unless somebody makes. I them. don't see them happening. No, I don't think so either. Yeah,
0: but but, but you know, in in order of in order of uh, least likely things, I think uh, Amazon AWS spinning off is is least likely.
2: I mean, there are so many advantages right now for them to stay as one company.
1: So many, so many sins you can hide in that Amazon <laughs> revenue. <laughs> uh, that was, both those questions came from uh, Derek Helmick, by the way. Thanks, Derek. Uh, our last few questions are from Wayne. Uh, Wayne is a pretty active uh, data engineer. And he has, uh, the first one is, uh, do we think we will see the first serverless data warehouse solution? No. Uh, he says he feels Snowflake is close, but not serverless. Um, so I don't know if we'll see a serverless solution to Snowflake. I do think Amazon is threatened by Snowflake. And I do think they're working on something to compete with Snowflake in a big way. Is that a serverless solution? That's probably not from the cards for the first version. But definitely something, whatever they do to compete with Snowflake, it's going to get released as very serverful. And then maybe over time, becomes more serverless um, as it gets more maturity.
2: Is that question just for AWS?
1: I assume he's asking from a very AWS perspective. But um, you can answer it from any perspective.
2: Well, from a GCP perspective, I'd say we already have it with BigQuery.
1: See, I feel I feel like the fact that he calls out Snowflake makes the question slightly more complicated because I don't feel that BigQuery and Snowflake are comparable really in any way uh, from what their solutions are and what they how they fix things. Um, but you know, I I could see your argument. Anyway. So
0: so why? I mean, before I answer the question, I guess why why do you guys feel that Snowflake has an edge over what AWS already has Ooh, as that's a good Oh, I
1: I think the The big thing for Snowflake is that it if performance wise it it beats the crap out of redshift and it's
2: uh, yeah, and I've heard from my engineers that for scaling it up to to run big to run larger um, queries and then scaling back down is is faster, which makes it more efficient from a cost perspective um, and easier.
0: Okay,
1: yeah, so it's interesting actually because you now you mentioned uh, that part of it. Azure kind of has this now because they just released uh, at Build. Their new data warehousing capability, which is very Snowflake-ish, uh, and is very serverless, so Azure's already got this kind of. They already have a solution, I think, for the data warehousing.
0: Now, is is it more a matter of AWS keeping more metadata or more indexes or more uh, caching of queries that for you know Athena queries, things like that? I mean, what's um, what what would they have to add to their existing tooling to be comparable to what Snowflake have?
1: Being able to get above one hundred concurrent connections to Redshift would be the first step in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll see. Uh, so his f- second question is that uh, he does point out that GCP has a fantastic serverless solution for data processing and data flow, but AWS's story of Glue is terrible. Uh, it takes forever to load and is highly limited, and does do we predict a solution to fill the void? Um, and I think um, on this one, I don't have a good answer.
2: <laughs> yeah, I haven't used Glue. I mean, Amazon's had a ton of these services sort of replace each other. Mm-hmm.
1: Again, it feels like an area that, you know, the scale out um, step functions capability, where you trade off durability for some performance capabilities. That gives you the ability to do a lot of glue type things with Kubernetes or sorry, with, uh, ECS batch and those type of things. Being able to do that on containers that gives you a bunch of options on how to do this. Um, I think glue. Is a little long in the tooth right now <laughs> in comparative to some of the other technologies that come out with, but I, I wouldn't be surprised to see SageMaker doesn't come out with something in this area as well. So I think something will replace it. I just don't know if it'll be better or, or more of what you're looking for, Wayne. Mm. Okay, Jonathan, thanks for that. <laughs> I was in the middle of thinking about a, uh,
0: uh, a sentence, honestly. Um, there are really so many options, though, other than glue. I mean, even on the floor of reInvent there were a bunch of ETL ATL companies there who are definitely thriving in the in the space. I mean there's airflow, there's Aluma, um, what else is there? I mean, Apache you've got some products like Kudu and Spark. I mean, even Spark can kind of uh competes with Glue uh, in some respects. So I d I I don't know, I think I think Glue is just a foot in the door for AWS and I, I'm sure it will grow and become better
2: over time, but um, it's going to take him a few years. Yeah, and I mean, it. it remember, data pipeline was before Glue. Yeah.
1: Uh, then Wayne's last question to us is: uh, Do we see a world of AWS or other providers doing auto cost optimization to help lower costs for all? Uh, and he says, I know this sounds weird to some, but we'll open. A- but it would open up avenues for us to explore new solutions whilst managing a tight budget without the need to keep a close eye on Cost Explorer, Cloud Health or an accountant to hand uh, you the information as you go. I think uh, that is an interesting question. I do think uh, we will see more optimizations are happening inside AWS, especially after savings plan kind of came to be. Um, I think that eliminates a lot of the cost optimization challenges that you might have been having before. Um, and if you're looking for predictability, which is the most common thing you're looking for in any type of cloud, you know that predictability of savings plan gives you flexibility and predictability, which I think is great. I think you will start seeing uh, free tier standardization for AWS. I think you will see maybe some type of optimizations for longer running instances and giving you automatic discounts. I think that's what Google's attacking them with in the market. And so I think those are areas that they will try to adjust Um, And I do think you'll start seeing some more cost things, but auto cost optimization is a hard one because of the risk that you're taking to your application. And and AWS in particular is not going to take an action on your system that potentially will cause downtime or impact your user experience because that's not what they're interested in doing. Um, So we'll see what that looks like. Uh, But I assume it would be more of an accounting thing in the back end versus an actual shutting down instances or not. Uh but uh I'll let Jonathan answer this as the author of a project we called Thor's Hammer, where we shut off <laughs> a ton of uh, a ton of infrastructure aggressively. Uh, I'm sure he has a better answer than I do. I, I, I have a
0: kind of slightly weird answer because I think um the challenge of any cloud provider is to is to be able to burst up to anybody's need when they need it without having a bunch of waste. Uh, just without having to pay for a bunch of extra capacity that nobody's using at the time. And so if I think about things like provisioned IOPS disks, I'd love to be able to pay for the IOPS I use, but not necessarily pay for those IOPS all the time. I'd like to see a middle ground between like the GP2 GP2 volumes and the IO1 volumes, where I can pay for some kind of burst rate up into high performance at some times a day when I need it. Um, But I think really as... uh, Amazon specifically have, have put a lot of effort into uh, emphasizing the need for cost savings or at least optimization of things like instance types in their best practices models and their well-architected models. Um, I think mostly it's self-serving because if, if you have uh, a bunch of EC2 instances running and they're not doing a lot most of the time, they're also not using your other services. They're not using other APIs that cost money like recognition or S3 or any of these other things. So by optimizing the compute spend and by packing more people in, more more customers in, more applications in, you sort of open up more opportunities for them to spend more money on your other products. And I think that's... Probably Amazon's motivation in all of this is that they want to be able to fit more customers in using more services all the time. So I, as far as auto cost optimization, I think I, I don't think that they're going to do anything other than give recommendations. They certainly wouldn't change any infrastructure that you have. Maybe they will offer some kind of dynamic instance, uh, in, even more so than the T2s or the T3s, where you sort of say, I, I want to be able to burst to this Potentially, but only charge me the base rate most of the time. I think that's probably the, the, the beginnings of the step in that direction. But I, I don't see them doing anything other than uh, what they're doing already as far as providing uh, you know, burstability into higher tiers, especially with things like DynamoDB and EC2. Yeah,
2: I mean, I definitely think that their um, motivation is in the right place. I think that if Amazon could offer that Right away, they would um, totally agree with your point, Jonathan. That the, the more cost effective they make the platform for specific workloads, um, the more workloads become candidates to run there, and so it just makes the pie grow exponentially faster. Yeah. But yeah, it's hard to do. We all know it's hard to do. You have to have context. You have to understand what you're trying to do to get your to optimize your spend. It's not yeah. just about you know, clicking a magic button.
0: Yeah, and it's great when trusted advisor tells you that this instance that you have running uh, has an average of uh, you know an average of two percent CPU utilization. But if I've got an instance running which is absolutely critical, yeah. and and for, for for ten minutes every day it needs to do this thing as fast as it possibly can, an average means and an average is meaningless to me. You know, it, it doesn't mean anything, and I think understanding the workloads is, is going to be more important, which yeah. I think is, is kind of why serverless is, is the key to this whole thing, because uh, once you break out these things into serverless functions, you know that when that thing is running, it's the most important thing that needs to run at that very
2: moment in time. Yes. So, I, I, By the way, long, long, long term, I think I agree 100% that that's the, that's, the, that's the true cloud-native model. Run your functions in the cloud, just like you would on a mainframe.
0: Um, ch- charge me per
2: instruction. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like a mainframe, exactly. zero service. <laughs> um, uh,
0: to Justin's point, the the way Google uh, provide discounts for long running instances, I think is is really fantastic, and I wish AWS would do the same thing. You know, automatically apply discounts as instances age, and it becomes obvious that they're long running. It becomes obvious that you're committed to running this thing for for a certain length of time without having to go to the effort of buying an RI or a savings plan. Yeah.
1: I mean, at the end of the day, what your CFO wants is predictability. Um, cost optimization is actually really not what they want. They just want to know that if you're going to spend you know, $5 million a month, that you actually only spend $5 million a month. Um, and so I think it's, it's really where it's going to be more interesting to see how Amazon makes the spend more predictable and less destructive when someone spends on something that you didn't expect. And how do you manage that more effectively? Uh, but We'll see. I, 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 mean, I do hope to see more improvements here. Like I said, I, I wish to see a better free plan. I do wish to see auto um, discounts for long-running instances. Um, I think that would be big advantage, especially when you don't have – you already have things like no upfront reservations and things like that. What's the risk of Amazon saying, oh, well, we're just, just going to guarantee this for the rest of the month automatically and give you a better price? So. Yeah. Well, good. Uh, that is all of the questions we did. Uh, we'd love to make this a normal segment on the show, so do join the Slack channel if you can, uh, and ask those questions to us, and we'll we'll include one or two in every week um, if uh, people ask those questions, and we would love to have that as a regular segment. So that was lots of fun. Thanks again, guys, for giving us your 2019 predictions and where we're going in 2020. Uh, and uh, that's it for this this edition of the Cloud Pod. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Happy to Year. Happy New Year! Uh, we, all I, I did notice that the uh, the vendors are starting to make announcements again, so they are back from their vacations oh. as well. I assume by the time we record next week, we'll have a, a large number of announcements for all of you uh, here at the Cloud Pod. <laughs> and that is the Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting and Blue Medora. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us at hashtag thecloudpod. <laughs>
0: Thank you very much and good night.
2: Perfect. All right, I'm going to get some sleep. No, oh, I wasn't recording the whole time. <laughs>
0: oh no. <laughs> oh, no, I'm just kidding.